everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher, or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer, or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, educate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education and Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, we're going to talk about an advocate's journey. I train special education advocates in the ABC course, but it isn't too often that I have on for you advocates, and I probably should just talk about people's journeys to advocacy here more often. I'm super curious to hear whether or not you like this kind of topic. So give me some feedback on whether or not you would like to hear about more people's advocacy journeys. Today, I welcome to the podcast, Lisa Richer. Lisa is a certified neurodiversity consultant who believes that we must first seek to understand the learner in order to effectively support them in all learning and development goals. As a parent of two neurodivergent boys, 20 years of combined leadership, human resources, neurodiversity consulting experience, and years as an elite level athlete, Lisa leverages her lived experiences and professional training in her consultancy, which is called Journey to Bloom. Through her lens of ripe ideas, which is something that she's trademarked, Lisa simplifies the neurodiverse learning journey by connecting parents and educators with resources, tools, along with providing advisory services to help them navigate the complex and often overwhelming learning journey. Lisa's certifications and training include Cognizant Neurodiversity Masterclass Certificate, Parent Education for Behavioral Services Training, DEI in the Workplace Certificate, COPA Special Education Advocate Seat 2.0 Training, COPA Advanced Advocate Certificate, and Expectations Matter. I am so excited to welcome Lisa to the podcast today and for her to share her journey with you. Lisa is speaking at a conference that is being put on by the National Down Syndrome Congress, a place where I used to work, and that conference is called Techniques for Success. It is on February 11th, 2023, and it is taking place in Ellicott City. If you are interested in learning more, you can go to techniquesforsuccess.org. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here too. So friends, Lisa was connected to me because Lisa is speaking at Techniques for Success, which is an event that the NDSC is putting on with several different Down Syndrome associations in the state of Maryland. And Lisa is actually giving our keynote there. So I invited her on to help us promote that conference as well as to hear a little bit more about Lisa. So Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about today and the conference coming up. Yes, yes. Good. I am excited too. It is a super dreary, rainy day here in Cincinnati. And so I always like talking the talk with 
nice colleagues that also walk the walk that I walk. And that's actually what we're talking about today, Lisa. So we're going to talk about your journey in advocacy. And I think a nice starting point is for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So just give us a little bit of background on what you do and how your journey maybe started. Absolutely. I'm going to, I'll start it at the point of of parenthood, because that's really where the journey to me becoming a neurodiversity consultant began. My, I have two children, one is 16 and the other is 12, both boys, and they both are neurodivergent. They both have different diagnoses and showed up very differently in that entire process. And it started really early on. My oldest, that is now 16, was having issues even as a very young infant nursing. And we found out that he was having some problems swallowing. So we had to use a Haberman bottle. So very early on in our very early stages in a Haberman bottle, for those that don't know, it actually, you can turn it to make the milk come out slower or faster. And so it helped him learn how to latch and swallow and just be able to, um, to eat anything. And back then, little did I know that we were going to be on this long journey to a diagnosis. And in the process of going through that, I just became very engaged and interested in what this world was about. First time mom, I have my own social anxiety. I am undiagnosed, but anybody that knows me, every assessment I've taken says ADHD and highly sensitive person. And I know that if I go in and got a diagnosis, that's what it would be. Yeah. But I also- so What would you do with that? So what's the point? <laughs> you just said it. That's exactly, you just took the words out of my mouth. To right. me, diagnosis and labels don't drive what what's going to help. And in, in the journey with my oldest, we did infants and toddlers and we were trying to figure out what was going on and we did speech and language. And then we were told, okay, it's just speech and language. And then time went on and he was a toe walker and a hand flapper and sensory meltdowns. And then we started OT and then the list went on and on and with psychologists and all sorts of things and trying to figure out what was going on with him. So that's, I know, part of my journey. Me as a person, I was an elite level athlete growing up. I was very intense into sports, worked with sports psychologists, competed internationally for the United States for gymnastics in the 80s, and always been very passionate about things that were passionate to me and that meant a lot to me. And it was through that journey that really, my and my kiddos and their diagnoses eventually that led me to, to where I am. So I don't know if that answered the question that you were asking me. For sure, yeah. Place as well. So that's something to be compared And so on. how old was your son when he was diagnosed with autism ultimately? My oldest son was diagnosed with autism at four and a half. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It was after we were told he has behavioral problems. Some people said it was social skill issues. Some people said it was just finding gross motor skills. And it wasn't until we had a psychologist we had a behavioralist that was really a shadow and he was a certified ECBA, but he came in and was really shadowing and trying to journal and help us figure out why was my child having so many sensory meltdowns? Why was he not able to do some of the things? Why socially was he throwing stuff instead of asking a child to play with him? What was going on with the hand flipping and the toe walking and was it behavior and pulling it all together we finally went in and got all the assessments for diagnosis for the older one. The younger one was diagnosed with ADHD at eight. 
And there was a long journey with him getting to that diagnosis. But my oldest was diagnosed at four and a half. And I talk to my clients a lot about this because oftentimes I have clients that come in and they are still coping with a diagnosis. And I people are apologetic about that for some reason. They're hesitant to take my advice or they are slow to act on something that I might suggest. And they're like, I'm sorry. And eventually the conversation kind of gets to, I am still coping with this diagnosis. And that's really interesting because I live in the Down syndrome community as a caregiver, a parent in the Down syndrome community. And our, most of the time, our diagnoses come at birth or shortly after birth with very few exceptions. And so that kind of coping piece of it, I don't want to say largely done, right? Because we're always coping, but the initial coping phase is certainly done by the time that we get to preschool or to school age services. And I know for people that get diagnoses later in life or have to advocate for the diagnosis, that advocacy gene is turned on. If you've got it, you've got it. So I guess the question there is for you now, because you've got this successful consultancy gig going, can you identify when and how that advocacy thing, that spark came up where you were like, oh, I'm going to have to really look at services and I'm going to have to look for answers for him. And I'm going to have to turn this up a notch for him in order to get some answers and some supports. Yeah. And I'm not sure if we're visually on here, but I get tears in my eyes and I might get emotional. So we'll go there. I wrote down a couple of notes because that's how I retain things that, that fear of judgment and shame. I wanted to acknowledge that first, because a lot of times the acceptance is masked because of fear of judgment and shame. What are others going to think? What did I do wrong? Why is this? Why did this happen? And so acknowledging first that this is happening and then being able to accept it are really core. And I find the same thing about with my clients and even with a lot of people in my family, it was until you can acknowledge it, you're never going to accept it. And there were many people that I actually had to stop talking to for periods of time. So to answer your question, when for me, it was day one. And I don't know if it was the athlete in me. I don't know if it was just that they're definitely at the core. I am resilience defined. You are not going to stop me from getting what I can, how I can. And I knew nothing about anything. So people say to me all the time, Lisa, somehow you figure out the unknown unknowns. And that's one of the biggest things that makes my heart sing. Like the fact that I can dig down and find those unknown unknowns. In this journey, I was trying to find those unknown unknowns, having no idea where to begin right? It started really early on. I was really, I want to ask you something because I have that too. I remember my mom telling me in the hospital that I was going to be the president of special Olympics. And now here I am working for the national down syndrome Congress, but I was like, sorry, mom, if you listen somewhat resentful of that, because I was like, I don't want that. Like, not that I didn't want, I had this weird coping thing where I was like, okay, cool. I had a lot of acceptance really early on, which I know is not normal. And that's not like the majority of people aren't that accepting that quickly. So I didn't feel resent, but I felt resent that she like was going to put my personality and just jam me into the disability community as a leader. Like I, I wanted, I eventually found my path there. Did you have this kind of like clash of 
your personality, the resilience that's already inside of you and your destiny or for you, did it just line up entirely? That's a really great question. I don't think I had any idea this is where I would end up back then okay. because this was, I guess, 14, about 14 and a half years ago when I really dove into it. I knew that early on I was being a part of it. We had our very first pediatrician said she was wonderful. And I think as a first time parent, it was the beginning of my journey to becoming an advocate. Honestly, she said, go get the infant and toddler assessments done. It can't hurt. She was very open to anything, not shaming, not being a, I'm a, nothing against doctors because doctors are beautiful and wonderful and we need them and I love them. But some doctors that are trained in a very linear path, and this is partly what goes against the grain of what I do, because I look, I think very much outside the box, but if they were trained in a certain way, that fear of the unknown, you don't want to misshare with patients. Like I have a close friend who's a doctor and we just had this conversation two days ago. She said, a lot of us in our, in my industry are very hesitant to share their actual thoughts because it can get misconstrued as medical diagnosis or medical something. And I, I commended her that as a mom of neurodivergent children and as a doctor, she's not afraid to go out on that limb. Not mm-hmm. that much. So as a person that's not a psychiatrist, that's not a doctor, that's any type of certified, at that point, I didn't even know if there was a certification, there were just advocates out there that were doing anything. I knew that my child was not going to be put in a square box. Yeah. So where the journey started for me was I used that resilience to start to dig down and uncover. I stopped talking to the people that were saying, it'll go away, or why would you need to talk to a psychologist, or why do they need OT, or why this? Worked with a child psychologist with my oldest and my husband, who was trying to come to terms with accepting that this was going on and not blaming himself and not blaming some diagnoses of family members and, you know, and things like, because, oh my gosh, this is in my genes. Like we go through different phases. Yeah. It was good and bad. I can tell you the first two and a half years of me going full force with my oldest, I never stopped to process it. So because of my resilience, it helped me compartmentalize it for a while. And when I did come to terms with it, I had my emotions. I had all those ups and downs, but in the time and in the moment, I found a psychologist who was a family and behavioral focused psychologist who said, your son is, this is before his diagnosis. This was at like at 18 months. I think he's, he seems very intelligent. He's got empathy. Like I've never seen at a child at 18 months. He's got a lot going on. He's got a lot of sensory issues. What we need to do right now is get him working with me and you and your husband And we need him get him working with an OT. And we were doing like this brushing therapy. And I can't remember the name of it, but it's a very, for all the sensory and all the wiring and all the nervous system stuff. So we got him, she got me in touch with an OT. She also got me in touch with a behavioralist that we, the behavioralist came a year later, the OT started it and we were working in a school as a preschool. So we had these services that were beginning And I would talk to her about what's next. She would talk to me about how are you doing? Really as a person, how are you feeling? This is a lot on you. And I go fine until she broke me down, which was great because she needed to break me down to get me to be able to see 
I too can have those emotions. Like you, I accepted it really early on. And I was so focused on helping him help himself that I forgot about helping myself. So in the journey, I we went through different schools. We went through the, we went through the behavioralists. We had our, uh, our psychologist actually ran a social skills program at the preschool that we ended up going to, our second preschool. I didn't know she ran the program there. She gave me the names of a couple of schools. And that was one that we went to. And that was the one we loved the best. And then she told me, oh, by the way, I run a social skills program through this school as well. She didn't want to tell me what to do. She wanted to guide me toward options, which is what I do in the core of my business. I guide people intentionally without direction. And that's what she did for me. She gave me, go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's the next natural question is, so then how did you take the skills that you learned in advocating for your children and figuring out services for your children and putting together this kind of curated group of professionals for your kids? How did you then say, oh, I can do something with this from a business perspective? Walk us through that piece of your decision-making and that piece of your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So we're fast forwarding post my oldest son's diagnosis of autism and them telling me he would never go to a normal school along with some other things that I shared with you earlier. We're talking post all of the IEP. So I'll just fill in that blank because now you're afraid to say it. So Lisa got told like really offensive things when, you know, through this diagnosis process. And I think it's fair to say a lot of us get told really offensive things. I've had Kayla Shadigan who talks about diagnosis and the medical ethics involved in diagnosis. On the Down syndrome community, oftentimes you are offered termination, you are offered institutionalization, you're offered adoption and even in ways that are not super respectful or even objective. And so Lisa was told things on diagnosis, things that were completely stereotypical and offensive, including language and that sort of thing that was offensive. Is that fair, Lisa? It's fair. It's fair. And I think it's less, and I appreciate you calling me out on that because (laughs) my word of the year is courage. And so that, to not say that, I guess in my mind, I was thinking, is it really relevant? And it's relevant, right? Anything that we've been through and what we're feeling is relevant. When I I preach that and work with clients with that, and yet here I was like not sharing that. And, And yes, but that was another pushing off point for me to go down this journey. You know, what's you know, what's interesting about that. This is what happens when you talk to me as I go on like weird tangents, but I've been through branding processes three times for three different businesses. And when people present a brand to me, they almost always present a brand that is like sunshine and roses and unicorns, pooping rainbows. And then I'm like, oh yeah, that's because of the smile and the blonde hair and the kindergarten teacher thing. So let me take out some of that and let me put in some of this like badass decision-making and don't sweat the small stuff, stuff that comes with having a kid with a disability and kind of my sass. And like you, I was an athlete too. And not, I did not compete for the United States for the record. And I, but like this type A ADHD adness of me and tell you that I actually like conflict. I like ideological conflict that gets shit done. I sometimes cuss. I like have my kid gave me this bullshit radar that tells me like, that's good. That's bad. I don't have time for it. Walk away from it. And so like, 
I call that my superpower. All of those like hardships end up to be really perspective building and framework shifting. And I love that, but it comes from my, I have long story. You don't need to know it now, but I have four broken vertebrae in my back that I got in a gasoline explosion. My husband's had cancer. I've had all of these things that have brought me that perspective shift. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And not to go on the full story, my husband's also a cancer survivor got diagnosed when my oldest was eight months old. So that yeah. was also something I was holding in when the, my young, my oldest son's psychologist was like, so how are you really doing? I left yeah. that out. That was part of the how are you really doing? Right. So there was that, there's the diagnoses. There were family members saying, you know, don't worry about it. Don't do this. This will just go away. The behaviors will change. And I grew up in a family where there were behaviors that I would watch and go, what, why are we not dealing with these things? I've gone through lots of therapy and EMDR therapy more recently that has really helped me come to terms with different traumas and people pleasing and the I get what you're saying. My courage theme for this year of my word is part of my true self is what similar to what you, I like constructive conflict. I like to live in controlled chaos, but I had dealt with gaslighters that because I think differently, because I approach things differently, because what I do today, 10 years after I wanted to do it. So I'm going to go into that piece of what you just asked 10 years after I wanted to, because even though I was advocating for my own children and I was making progress, I had so many people saying, what are you talking about? Why would you want to go do that for a living? Why wouldn't you want to do this? I don't understand how, where you're coming from. This doesn't make any sense to me. Why don't you get it? I know you're smart. Like those are things that were said to me from corporate leaders. And I was a corporate leader and they were leaders above me and I got smaller and smaller. And so 10 years ago, when I really started to think about doing this as a career, I looked back and I noticed there were a lot of people that were advocates that had no experience in advocacy. They were telling people to do things and say things that I felt like I just want my, made my skin crawl. There were some that were phenomenal, but there was also the school system that was like, oh, you're a special education advocate. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to work with you. And so when my oldest was in fifth grade, his principal at the time was leaving the public system and going to the private system. And he said to me, I shared my blog with him and I've been blogging since my oldest was probably one because I was blogging my journey. I don't do it as often because I do this now. I feel like I can get my voice out in different ways. Yeah. He said, we need more people like you. You work with parents who are there for parents in collaboration with schools on behalf of the learner. We need more people like you. Your children, and I'm going to start crying, <laughs> are where they are today because of how you show up, what you do for them, and how much you care about all the people that are part of the team. Yeah. And so that was my relaunch point. So it was fifth grade for my oldest that I went and I sought out is there an advocacy certification? And I found through COPA, Council of Parent Attorney Advocates, that they had the special education advocacy training. They call it the SEAT training, the 1.0, the 2.0, and then some additional ones. I applied for the 2.0 because I knew enough to be dangerous, but right. I didn't know enough to be appropriately dangerous. And I mean that in right. a kind of way. I had the SAS and I had the perseverance and I had the persistence and I had the relationships 
but I didn't even know what I didn't know. There right. were things that I was not getting for my own children because I was told by even this principal, because he was told by administration years earlier, we couldn't do certain things. And I was told by other teachers that things were happening that weren't happening. And I thought I couldn't ask for resources and tools or samples of things because I was told by people I trusted in the school system, we can't give that to you. And I needed to know the truth. So, I, and I wouldn't, did not want people to pay me to be their advocate unless I knew I had enough true knowledge of the law, of mm -hmm. how things worked and of right. what I knew and I didn't know and how to utilize them to not just help my own kids, but to help people that were now paying me to do it. So over and, time, I did and, that, and we talk about that here a lot. We talk about how really to be a good advocate um, parents and advocates need to know special education law, the framework of the law, which is what seat 2.0 is really good at. In addition to the content, like how do you actually educate somebody? So, you know, and a lot of us are, do not have master's degrees in special education. So we are reading books about literacy and about modif modifying curriculum and about fill in the blank behavior, whatever it is. And then we also need to have the advocacy strategies and the negotiation strategies in order to sit in those meetings and to have that constructive ideological conflict and to have those conversations that are going to yield effective change. Yeah. And your journey is a textbook journey, right? You have the story, you get the passion, you get the experience, you go get the training for the mechanics, and then you become an ever evolving student of special, all things special education, right? All things special education. I had initially opened my business as Bloom Special Education Advocacy in 2018. In the midst of COVID, I chose to step back, research, and then rebrand based on that research to Journey to Bloom as my business name. And what I call myself now is a neurodiversity consultant because it is all things special ed. And I'm not just an advocate for special ed. There are so many children that don't have a diagnosis, don't have a label or have been labeled inappropriately, diagnosed maybe inappropriately or not fully diagnosed, and they all still need help. I help parents through that entire journey. And it really starts with letting go of that fear and judgment, being accepting of what's happening, and then connecting the dots helping people through okay. the neurodiverse learning journey, what it could be. And the earlier the intervention, the better, because yeah. we don't know what we don't know and trying to navigate this journey alone. I've been there. I don't ever want another parent to feel the way that I did throughout mm -hmm. the first phases of my journey. Yeah. And it's Lisa, what I love about this is I have many conversations with people that are like, let me, I want to do what you do. I'm so passionate. And my kid's journey is blah, blah, blah. And you meet these people at the COPA conference and the people talk to you and they talk to me and they talk to other advocates about, I want to do this, but you can tell there isn't like the knowledge piece of it, the content piece of it. And I, I always enjoy talking with people that have the passion, but then also go get the training and they continue to learn and continue. For me, it's almost like sometimes I lose the passion. I don't lose the passion for advocating for the students, but I lose the like my why sometimes because I get so involved in the mechanics of a case, the behavior issue, the academic goals, the educational placement. And then I forget about how, oh my gosh, we're loving the human. And so these conversations that we're having, I think that this can be a very powerful podcast 
episode because this takes us back to our roots and takes us back to our why and takes us back to the human and the passion that we have for advocating for our children and our clients. And I'm so grateful that you joined us because I think this will be a huge asset to my community. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. And like you said, I it can be draining and exhausting. I don't necessarily lose my why, that energy drain because you and I and others like us, and I call my people, we put everything into what we do for our clients on behalf of the child. And it's exhausting. It's really exhausting to go through that journey. To me, it's worth every ounce of it when parents and caregivers and even educators are willing to show up and work together on behalf of the child. Yeah, absolutely. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. And if anybody's interested in coming to Techniques for Success, again, it's February 11th in Ellicott City, Maryland, and it is being offered by the Down Syndrome Association of Maryland, Friends, and the Down Syndrome Association of Montgomery County in collaboration with the National Down Syndrome Congress. Lisa, we'll see you there. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you.